Hey, it's Eric Newcomer. I'm here with Tom Dotan and Katie Benner, and this week's Dead Cat. We're talking with Elizabeth Jarvis Sheen. She's worked for Barack Obama and Elon Musk. Today, she runs policy and communications for DoorDash. Liz was behind some of the biggest political stories of the Obama years, researching Sarah Palin's history as governor of Alaska and digging into Mitt Romney's fortune. We talked to Liz about working for Elon Musk, car elevators, Prop 22, and technology companies circumventing the media and talking directly to the public. Now let's get to our chat with Liz. Welcome. Welcome. wanted to bring you back to your time at Tesla and just ask, first of all, what what was it like to work with the CEO who was at the time building, you know, such a large Twitter following or just what was the experience, you know, working with one of these CEOs when when they can sort of go direct so powerfully? And what, what was that like back then? I think it was more than anything in 2013, 2014, you know, at Tesla, we were just fighting for respect. That was a war again. It was a war with the auto we, press at the time, or who was the real enemy? It, I, you know, it, I, I don't know that it was a. It was. I don't know that any of it was was a war, but it was. We were this little Silicon Valley startup that, up until Model S, you know, the um, the Roadster. I was not there for Roadster, but Roadster was not a production car that Tesla actually built at its factory over in Fremont, right? It was a Lotus Elise chassis that you dropped a battery pack into, and so Model S. I, I arrived the year, but but after Model S won uh, Car of the Year, which was like the thing that really put it on the map, um, and started to propel electric vehicles, Tesla and Elon, I think, into a different place in terms of the public's consciousness. Right, electric vehicles up to that point are thought of as like golf carts. Nobody wants them. They're super dorky, and all of a sudden there was a documentary. Who killed the electric car? Do you remember that one? Who killed the electric car? I do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Everybody watched Yeah, it was like one. two yeah. hours of Ed Begley Jr. being very sad that his electric car wasn't as popular as he wanted it to be. Right. And all of a sudden, there is this sexy, hot shit sedan that is powered by... Yes. I'm allowed to curse here. Encourage. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, it's, it's that kind of podcast. It's that kind of podcast. Um, that that just was incredibly compelling. And it was this... It was, it was fighting for respect that we weren't just going to be a niche sort of rich person's toy and you know for elon like he feels incredibly passionately about the mission at tesla like he and and how would you describe that mission that mission (laughs) that mission is to um is to accelerate the advent of sustainable transportation and like to my mind it is unquestionably succeeded Back in 2013, 2014, like major automotive companies were not serious about their EV programs. Nobody was serious about charging infrastructure. Nobody was serious about it. Everybody thought it was hilarious. He was the person who really taught me about, I, I think Eric is less about sort of going direct and more about controlling your own destiny, um, right? Like historically, yeah. automakers, I, this is probably not that dissimilar from like tech hardware, right? Like you, you peg your the launches of your new vehicles and the new models to some often to some given uh, motor show, right? And so you time it to launch around Detroit in the winter or you know Geneva or Paris, or Frankfurt. Um, and Elon was like, "That's not what we're gonna do. We're, we're gonna we're gonna launch our you know whether it's cars or updates or anything like that. We're gonna do that on our own timeline and we're gonna do it in our own way." 
and and we and and you know Liz and everybody else like I expect the media to cover it um and it was about creating that product that was so compelling just saying like no we're going to do this on our own terms and I think that was very different um and it is, he is somebody who again he believes in it so passionately you know, you listen to him. I, I've heard him tell the story, and every time he tells the story about the like nearly going bankrupt in that winter of two thousand eight, he tears up because he like this means so much to him. Um, and it, but the direct, you know, this the sort of going direct idea. He has an incredibly clear voice that is, by the way, like impossible to write in or anything like that. Anybody who I think tr- who like tries to write for Elon Musk. Yeah, how do you do comms for that? I mean, he doesn't. He claims not to have. So I think there's. there's these days, right? My understanding is there's not sort of a, a, a headquarters-based team anymore. I think there are still some folks in some of the um, some of the international markets. But but I think you know as a company, what what we were trying to figure out at the time was less like how do you write in Elon's voice? Like that's not what that's about. It's how do you try to capture his vision. And his way of articulating things that makes it so compelling and translate that into something that bridges the gap then to the media and ultimately the public. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the examples, uh, I was there during the era of the, the first car fires. Um, and, and what year was that? At God, Katie, I think that was 2014. Yeah. Because um, I feel like I, I was at t- Fortune when... Tesla, be, there was buzz around it, and then the emergency started happening when I moved out to Silicon Valley. Yeah, and and that was you know we had there were just there there had been this secret we had never had a had never had a fire in one of the battery packs, and then just sort of circumstances were such that we ended up with two fires within about like six weeks of each other. Um, one in a car that was in Mexico, which was a little odd because we didn't actually have. Uh, hmm. We didn't sell, sell cars in Mexico. Um, but one of the, you know, one of Elon's points was like, let's just show what we're doing to fix this. And so we had created this underbody shield and everything like that. And we the team was out testing it and like running it over cinder blocks out, on, <laughs> out in the parking lots, I think, in Fremont. And we filmed it. And we just, you know, put that into a blog post, put it up on Medium with a GIF of the car running over the cinder block and sort of the impact and the way in which the cinder block exploded. And it was so, that was not sort of the direct communication that we might think of these days of like Twitter or Clubhouse or what have you, but it was, we are going to tell our own story and we're going to tell it in a way that is compelling and interesting and probably at that time at least very unique for automotive. I remember too that the the auto press was not going to pay attention to Tesla, and Tesla felt very, um, you know, te- Tesla Tesla was going up against not just the idea of the auto press, but the relationships that the automotive companies have with the auto press. You know, for a really long time, covering automobiles basically until the financial crisis was a very boys in their toys type industry. It was a bunch of male reporters generally who went out with corporate executives and drove really fast together and then had a drink. And so that was such an entrenched community of backslapping that for Tesla to enter it felt like a non-starter. And I can even remember being at Fortune seeing the way Tesla wasn't getting coverage felt so much about that. And so for you to make these almost guerrilla videos that no auto reporter would pay attention to, you were allowing the public to obviate, you know, this group of men, basically, who decided which cars were cool that year. 
Well, it was, I think that's, it was a very entrenched, um, I think you're absolutely right, Katie. It was, it, it, it was a very entrenched uh, sort of relationship and we were absolutely the upstarts. I mean, and to your point on men, like the number of times I was, I was referred to as a PR girl. Oh, hey, you look like a PR girl. Yikes. Can I talk to, can I talk to you about the car? And I'm like, you go fuck yourself. But yeah, I'll talk yeah, to you. Very, very mad men. I like that. Yeah, no, <laughs> very. Would, would, you, would you like a, would you like a Manhattan and a back rub too? It looks like you gotta be kidding me. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was, that was where we were fighting for respect. Yeah. Um, and it, it was very challenging. Um, but I think that, <clears throat> Like Elon's ability and the company's ability to go sort of tell these stories more broadly and in different ways began to generate the enthusiasm within the public, most of whom, by the way, like couldn't afford a Model S, right? Very high price point car, publicly acknowledged. Um, but there became this enthusiastic public that wanted to read about Tesla. And that, in some ways, I think helped to both create the credibility but drive the impetus for. Uh, for coverage more broadly. To, to me, one of the pivotal moments in Elon's relationship with the press came, and I think it was probably the time that you were there, which was that the Wall Street Journal's car reviewer did a you know fairly scathing review New York Times, of right? New York Times. Was it, it was, Times? It was oh. the Times. Sorry. It was bef- it was before I. G- it was a few. Want- it was six months before I started, but it was the Times. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, my apologies to the journal, who but it was who did it was I, like one of their big, you know, big deal car reviewers who who wrote this review in which he said this thing left me stranded in the middle of like the New England wilderness yeah. because the battery the battery levels were not accurate and I ran out of juice. Mm-hmm. And Elon responded very publicly by tweeting out the data that I guess the company gathers on all drivers, which is interesting on its own, showing that its battery levels were totally accurate. What the fuck is this guy? talking about uh, if anything the Tesla overperformed based on the conditions that it was put in and how far over the limit this guy was driving in terms of battery levels and I mean I thought it was a it, honestly I, I don't know you know the accuracy one way or the other there and where the public ended up you know deciding who the right person was but it was a pretty impressive like big dick move on his part to say like what you're saying is not true and we have the data to back it up mm-hmm. and I don't know if the cult of Elon as you know, this important force combating against a negative press, uh, if it began there. But to me, it seemed like it was very fully formed at that point, where it's just like, I am my own media platform. Here is my audience. I will send them against the mainstream media or, or the antagonistic media to show them that I'm right and they're wrong and I've won and they've lost and this is the new dynamic. Like I said, that was that was about. I think that story was about six months before I got there. But I. I don't think that it is an antagonism towards media. It, it, like, right? I'm sitting on one side of the <laughs> on one side of the aisle, and um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that you you know we could call Dana Hall or, or others, and they'd they'd offer different perspectives. But I think I really do think, <clears throat> like, I situate that within the context of the company not being taken seriously broadly, and the cars and, and electric vehicles not being taken seriously, like feeling like an upstart, feeling like. Detroit was against us, you know, and the the German automakers and like all the vested interests and Wall Street and everybody. Um, and I also situate it within the context again of like, you know, and I know we're going to talk about this later, but the 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 passion that founder CEOs and in this case Elon in particular like really feel about <clears throat> their companies, and I think also in his, you know, in this particular case like really feel about the truth or. Um, and the data, and he was 
he was going to tell the story um, and share the data that he believed to be true to refute this and, and push back against what felt, again, at the time, it really did feel inside those four walls. Um, it really did feel like it was sort of an us against the world mentality. It was, everybody was so dismissive and like. I, these are, the, I mean, this theme, I mean, the truth. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you <laughs> is, you know, you worked with Obama doing research, right? So there mm-hmm. you get sort of ground truth, you know, the campaign sort of exposing to you the potential scandals. You sort of see the world of what could have been reported versus what is. Mm-hmm. And then again, working within the companies, you know, you see what they, they have facts, obviously, that they don't always reveal. So you have this sort of interesting view of the truth. Now, I would say it's probably distorted somewhat by being like in this Tesla case, you know, you're on the team and everybody inherently is going to sort of root for their perspective a little bit. But I guess the big question that I just want to ask is, do you think, yeah, in that episode and broadly, sort of the direct communication means the public gets a better sense of the truth than if it had been sort of intermediated by this sort of middle person who's trying to figure out the truth or just this way of the truth. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. such the core question to me of the conversation. Do you think this has improved what the public receives? I I think it's a yes and. Um, I think, like, I don't... I think that, you know, sort of the more direct channels and opportunities for anyone, you know, politicians, advocates, CEOs, um, you know, the folks who are... uh, in the broader public, civil society organizations, the ability to disseminate information directly and tell that story. Like, I think that that is, if done responsibly, value additive to a strong and robust fourth estate. Um, I, I don't I don't think that it's a, like, we should only do quote-unquote traditional media or we should only do direct channels because I think that you do one, you're, you're missing out on an opportun- on a in huge working, opportunity in, working in the with, other. Yeah, and working with... Elon and with Tesla in that time, did it? Did you have sort of flashbacks to your time on the Obama campaign? Because keep in mind, even though Barack Obama did win the presidency, it was not a sure thing. Hillary Clinton was supposed to win the presidency. She was the shoe in. She was the General Motors. She was the Ford. She was the Chrysler, and Obama was the Tesla. In I will not say how I feel about his presidency, whether I voted for him. I will say he was not a friend to traditional media. Through the course of his presidency, he did very few interviews with the Washington Post. It might have been none. Margaret Sullivan had this in a column. But mm-hmm. he did interviews with Between Two Ferns. He did interviews. He did late night TV interviews. He did mm-hmm. interviews with Jay Leno. He did not sit and actually speak and he did podcasts. He did not sit and speak with the reporters who cover the White House. Mark Barrett's podcast. And, so, and some, some of that felt like it came from a campaign and from a place where he had not been taken seriously by the traditional media. So, you know, can you compare some of the experiences you had working on the Obama campaign with, you know, how that translated to your work with Tesla? Sure. I mean, so full transparency, um, you know, I was not there in the early days. I was actually working at CNBC. Uh, I did I did a tour duty uh, in Englewood Cliffs with a bunch of fine folks there. Um, but I when I joined the campaign in Chicago in during the summer of 2008, we had already I was part of the crew that sort of joined once they had locked up the general. So um, I cannot I, I'm like a half OG Obama person, but not full OG. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, they were down what 40. He was down 40 points in Iowa, something like that. I, you know, yeah. it was it was like you're, you gave a great speech in 2004. 
congratulations, junior senator from, from Illinois. Like, <laughs> you're not going to be president. Um, and I, but I, so I think that part of the, the media strategy was about finding, like, Politico playbook. Um, How does and, this and I impact think, accountability, yeah. though? Because, you know, the AMA, the late night talk show... Um, Elon speaking to sort of a friendlier, not maybe press core, but a friendlier group of actors or finding his voice on mm-hmm. Twitter. Those things, I think, are fantastic for messaging. But what about the accountability piece that reporters with expertise can bring to bear by asking harder questions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I don't... Um... I'd be interested in your all's perspective, um, having not sat on like the reporting side of it, do... Is that a sort of necessary condition for accountability is sort of that that like access to the person at the top of the food chain? Or I don't know if I if I'm on the same page with Katie on there being much more accountability through beat reporters asking questions. Right. I'm definitely like, oh, letting Politico or whoever set the agenda, I would say would be a net negative. Certainly, I'm more sympathetic to Katie on having sort of the big Washington Post or New York Times beat reporters check in with the principals every once in a while and like make sure their questions are being put up. But I do worry that some of the like respected media loves to drive attention to sort of. Well, I also, I also think that we saw, you know, with, with Trump who was clearly, you know, he did sit down with the beat reporters, you know, he would talk to Maggie all the, you know, all the time. I don't think that's, he, he didn't really sit for a lot of big interviews of the type we're talking. He didn't have his press secretary go out like Jen Psaki does every day and take hard questions from the press. He didn't let people get grilled in the way that reporters are currently grilling Psaki and Tony Blinken on Afghanistan. That did not happen. But do you think it matters as much? Because, you know, we saw it when, with a few times that, I don't know, few or not, but, but the times that Trump did sit down with the media, uh, whether it was... I don't know, Jonathan Swan or any of the like TV network guys, they would ask the questions. He would dissemble. He would just kind of trail off and change the subject. He would get combative. And then they would just sort of move on. Like, I don't know if like accountability was achieved because the question but was asked. But the public was allowed to see um, what he was like as a person being asked questions. The public was allowed to see the answers that he gave. The public was allowed to see who he was as a leader through those answers. And, you know, people can say that that doesn't matter because folks already had strong opinions of Trump. But don't you think for us, if nothing else, the historic record, it was important to capture him speaking and to yeah. capture his yeah. leadership style? I guess. I just don't know if that leadership style was captured any more clearly through his insane speeches at CPAC versus, you know, what he would say to Jonathan Swan, where he was... I thought know, some of the Jonathan <laughs> Swan interviews actually had impact. I don't know. It's such a sprawling... Yeah, and, and, and impact and accountability crazier, are very different. Impact and accountability are completely well. different. Things. Talk a little bit about your job on the campaign because it's—I uh, think it would be fascinating to people. I mean, you're uh, accumulating dossiers, or I, I don't know. You're you're sort I of. I love the that dark you think it's, it sounds of, uh, so sexy like that. It is not. <laughs> Let me tell you guys, would, research... Is, is this like dossiers on reporters? Well, no, no. <laughs> well, maybe, but Sarah Palin, certainly, right? Uh, you were you were researching her and then Mitt Romney yeah. a little bit. Um, Romney, Romney a lot. Uh, a lot, hello okay. My, hello, hello to my friends from 2012. Um, yeah, no, look, it's it's not about... Again, It's I think research often gets described as the dark arts and like, oh, are you guys digging through trash bins? And it's like, no. 
we are sitting trolling through LexisNexis results and uh, video clips and local, you know, records and going to libraries and things like that. Um, and it's like to, reporting. To call it, assemb- <laughs> it is, in fact, a lot like reporting, I would argue. Oh, I'm uh, so and, sorry. And to, it, you know. Well, it's we key. All, I mean, this is how we all make choices when, in life. <laughs> when reporting is being hollowed out, you know, you're right. having to produce research. That, that can fill some of the gaps, right? Or, yeah, I think I think it's that's not right. That, it's it's not. That was one of the interesting dynamics. I think at that period of time, so like two thousand and eight, the midterms of twenty ten, the twenty twelve reelect. Um, you know, again, you all lived through this. I think in a much more personal way of the the gyrations and the changes, the fairly tech, like tectonic changes within media. And I think at that point, you know. For political media, there was a lot of emphasis on kind of the embeds who were on the trail or, um, you know, Politico had come up. And so there became a lot more emphasis on shorter form kind of breaking news and and that kind of stuff. Um, And so a lot of the investigative bureaus, even at places like The Times, The Journal, The Post, um, you know, probably did not have the resources that they had had historically and and probably don't, I would imagine now have, have rebuilt some of that. Um, And so one of the functions of the research team, I mean, the primary function of any research team is actually to know about your own gal or guy, like to know their record and to be able to go out there and tell the story of the accomplishments, understand where the vulnerabilities are and help the, the teams that are, that are doing sort of the thrust and parry with whether it's reporters or, you know, looking for endorsements uh, or or any of that sort of stuff, you know, understand the record and be able to, to speak to it in a compelling and convincing way. But there is then the, the side, um, you know, on the campaign side, it was different at the White House, but on the campaign side where, you know, you had an opponent or several opponents in the case of a primary um, and so needed to know about them. And, you know, you think about a candidate like, so, you know, Eric, you and I had talked about Sarah Palin. So I, I ran the Palin research. It's a great story. In, yeah, tell me I ran about the Palin, Sarah Palin. Yeah, so I ran the Palin research in 2008. Um, and you know, she had been, I think she had, we had moved her to like tier three or four. <laughs> you thought no way they're going to pick her. It's there was no way they were going to pick her because she had, there had been an open, there was an open ethics investigation into her, her governor's office. And like, was that Trooper Gate? It was Trooper Gate. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And yeah, like we, nobody, mm-hmm. nobody in their right minds picks that person as their number two. And so, you know. Trooper Gate was like deeply enmeshed in like big snowmobile, right? I think that's probably right. I, and actually it's snow machine, I learned snow uh, machine. Through, okay. throughout exactly. my, oh my, my, my time researching. Um, but, you know, we started hearing rumblings the morning of the announcement that they, that Senator McCain had selected a woman on the ticket. And I think we all thought it was going to be somebody like Kay Bailey Hutchison. And so we started like pulling it together, and all of a sudden, somebody, I think somebody yells out across the across the um, campaign headquarters, "It's Sarah Palin, like <laughs> from Alaska." Yeah. Um, He's gone maverick. He did a yeah, maverick. Yeah, you know, and like the state of Alaska website crashed. Uh, the whole the whole day was insane. But it was also I don't know that you're going to have a moment like that again in modern American politics, where it was essentially an eight week sprint to figure out. Who, who this woman was, what was his record, and it was, I mean, it was just kind of bonkers. Um, but, and, I mean, and I don't think there's anything untoward about this, but you're, you're, I don't know if it's you or the campaign, but you brief, like, Katie Couric before the big interview, or how, how does that play out? How does this get to the, to the reporters? So, it's, it's not uncommon um, before, you know, big interviews or debates or anything like that for 
for producers, reporters, whomever's doing it, but like sort of and everybody to reach out to to folks on on both campaigns and say like, what you know, what do you think would be interesting? What should we highlight? Um, and so you know, they were I have no doubt asking the McCain campaign and Sarah Palin's folks in the same way that they came to us. Um, and one of the points, the one of the I think one of the things for the Couric interview, which I was the, you know, I can see Russia from my house. Right, um, I mean, key to the, her idea. Well, well, we should be clear, that was not something that she said, that was something <laughs> okay. SNL later parodied, <laughs> ah, which fair. people Thank erroneously you. believed um, <laughs> yes. that she said. Yeah, that's she the didn't value say of that, reporters that, right it, there, good fact check, Tom. <laughs> right. Well done, Tom, fact check. Yes, yeah, Snopes.com um, over here. <laughs> um, but it was the one where it was, I think Katie asked, you know, like, what do you, you know, what are the, like, where do you get your news? Like, yeah, what, are you what do reading? you read? That one of the points to to Couric's folks was, uh, you know, Sarah Palin is probably a one of the most like prenaturally talented politicians of her generation. She is incredible on her feet. She's great with the sort of the one-liners and the 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 phraseology that just like sticks in your brain. But she had not up to that point really been pressed beyond kind of the top line stuff, beyond like the main bullet point and maybe the first sub bullet. And so the point to the I think that we made to to Katie's producers and other folks was like push her beyond that, keep asking the follow up, see what's there. Um, and it wasn't about any particular subject. It was just that at that point, you know, all of Palin's interviews had been very, uh, I think, surface level because nobody knew anything about this woman, and so a lot of it was just like getting to know this person. Um, and it was, I think, the Couric interview was that first one of like real deep substance. And then the Mitt Romney. Story. I don't want to give away. Oh any, man. Okay. Know, so I mean, I have so many Romney stories, but um, and again, all all my love to Lonnie Chen and Ben Ginsburg and all, all my friends, who, folks who I've become friends with since then, <laughs> um, who did not love me at the time. Um, so you know, among them, like we did all this research on the governor, his record as governor, you know, his time at Bain Capital, all of that. But the one I think that everybody remembers is the car elevators. Yes. Yes, oh. yes, the car elevators. So, as, uh, as normal course of business in research, you collect information, public record information about, but again, both your own Galler guy and, and the, the folks on the other side. And part of that, especially with someone like Mitt Romney, is um, his, his sort of personal holdings inclusive of property. And right, so he had this house and like a cabin in Lake Winnipesaukee. He had a home in, in Boston area. There's there's a property in Utah, obviously. And then there was this... We knew that there was a house in San Diego. Yes, so, a San Diego house. I don't know why that one was the one that pushed me over, but I was like, he's well, got a San Diego pad. It was because of the car elevators, Tom, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. So what you do... So like you, fi- you figure it out, and then you do on-the-ground collection, document collection of whatever might be publicly available. And in a place like La Jolla, it turns out there's there are many, many hoops to go through to renovate a house, uh, unsurprisingly, right? There, there's like California, so there were documents, we, we had some folks in, we hired some folks who were based in Southern California and they went down and collected like California Coastal Commission records and blueprints for the new house and the permit filings and like I mean I think that Governor Romney had had to and now Senator Romney had had to hire like a local lobbyist to shepherd all this through it was ridiculous there was tons of paperwork all of it publicly available so they package it up and they ship it back to us in Chicago and I'm sitting at my desk one day and the package arrives and the team's like going through it and one of my deputies Jameis Lynch pings me he's like hey boss can you come out here for a second I was like all right trot on out 
And out on the desk is this big blueprint of the plans for the new house, right? Because remember, they bought the property and the plan was to, to build a new house. He's like, so we're looking at this and he's like, what is this? He's like, it's two car lift, two car lift, what is that? And I was like, that is a car elevator. That is exactly what that is. So when you discover the car elevators, can you walk us through your emotional journey? Is it like, do you literally jump up and down for joy? Do you keep it inside so nobody sees you? Like, what's going on? Um, I, I think I was fairly dumbfounded at first, mostly because I'd only heard of car elevators like within automotive. Like, I come from a family of car nuts. We, we like love Formula One and all of that. Um, and I was like, I didn't even know that people had car elevators in their houses. That's so... First, I was like, that's kind of cool. But oh my god. Um, that one was a little bit less celebratory because you're sort of like, what What am I going to do with this? Um, the one... I will say, the, 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 the instance I do remember Katie jumping out of my chair and like running over to Jim Messina's office in a celebratory manner was when... Uh, was when Clint Eastwood started talking to a ch- an empty <laughs> chair at the Republican National Convention... <laughs> I, I, I also believe a, a greatly misunderstood moment. I thought it was a solid performance. Um, I, I thought people were being unfair. Right. You to tried to convince everybody that that had been good for the Republican. I mean, uh, yeah. A meta point to this on. I mean, I do think often like campaigns and companies spend a lot of time, people like yourself, communications people, trying to say, oh, this like silly one off case that obviously people are going to seize on. I mean, we talked about the condoms and the stairwells with Parker, you know, these iconic things distort, honestly, how people understand reality, right? Because they, they grab on, or I mean, maybe disagree. But then on the other hand, obviously, humans understand things through stories. That's exactly what the campaign understood. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting where you sit, where you're functioning like a reporter, where it's like, we're not looking for sort of a graph necessarily on his wealth over time. We're looking for something that sort of expresses emotionally his wealth, which is also what reporters are often looking for and leads, and that's what the public consumes. And so companies and campaigns, you know, you guys are sometimes on both sides of whether those emotional anecdotes are are smart or dumb. Well, because they want to package something that's going to do well with the media. Like, you have to think in the same way that a journalist does of, like, is the story going to sell? Which is how the public thinks. Right. But, but I'm curious here, you know, just to add on to Eric's question, like when you come to a place like the Tribune or, or, or Politico and say, here's this pre, you know, this, this perfect package of a story. That oh, gets I love that you think it was perfectly packaged. It's, it's, that's the thing. It's like it never is. It's like really because I mean, I don't you know, and I, I you know, Katie understands this more. So having been in D.C. for a bit, I have in my, all my years as a, as a tech reporter never been called up almost never <laughs> been called up by a, 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 a comms person and say, here is something you should write right now. This is a great really? story. Never? I don't think so. I mean, I'll, I'll to your wheelhouse here. I mean, there are times that, uh, <laughs> there, there are times that, you know, companies will certainly have an agenda they want to push that benefits me. But I feel like it's so much more common in p- political circles than it is in tech reporting circles. You're, you're someone have... who has to be convinced that you, you had the smart idea. So they, they give you the little thing and then you come 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 to it. Well, yeah, I mean... I'm just giving well, you a but, no, but it's also, but, like, but, I, 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 I don't I guess, think that... I mean, yeah, go ahead. It is, it, like, I, I want to be very clear. Like, anybody to whom we have ever, like, on the campaigns we ever shared research, like, everybody went out and did additional shoe leather reporting and like validated what we gave to them. Nobody was just like, Oh yeah. Bah, 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 and like up it goes. <laughs> like it was, um, 
that I, I that has never been my experience. Um, and and it is like, a I don't like from any other source. Yeah, it's it's like here's here's what here's what we've got here's here's what we've got like think you'd be interested, um you know here's here's some backup for it, like happy to talk through it, but want you to be able to do your own reporting on this. Um, but I th- I think Tommy may also just be a function of right it, like it's a different a campaign is a different dynamic than than tech. Right, like it, it, the particularly in like the, you know, the way that our democracy is set up, hopefully for a little while longer, is you know you, you like you do have those oppositional forces, and and again I think at the time you had a lot of newsrooms that didn't have, it wasn't that there weren't great reporters, it just was like they were, it was a really sort of like in the very challenging times, especially for local media, of like, do we have the resources to go out and spend like a week and a half doing document collection? The answer to that is no. Um, and, but but also just like, it is, I do think it, it is a little bit, it is more common within the political media and like some of the, just like the, the flow of information. You know, in the same way that like, where was Barack Obama's birth certificate? Like, is this thing real? Like, you know, that was stuff that was coming to us, not necessarily from the McCain campaign, but like from crazy ass people, you know, out on out on the fringe. But like that that was getting sort of moved against us in the same way that we were sharing things on the other side. I have a question about accountability again, because what's so interesting is we've established that it's okay to, you know, as an entity, whether you're a politician or the CEO of a company or corporation there's so many good ways to tell your own story without the press mm-hmm. why is it important for negative information about your competitor to be pushed through the press why can't a company or a politician simply say well you know what Mitt Romney you're not a man of the people you have car elevators what's going on with that I mean that could be a pretty good debate zinger so why was it more impactful for that to be pushed through a media organization I think, you know, to be quite honest, so I think it, um, number one, there were only, there was only so much that we could, we could do, um, through public records, um, and, and learn and share. Um, and I think we did at the time, there, there were some things where we would sort of begin to deploy it and then share the backup and, and those kinds of things. But I think it was also, I just think 2012 was a different era, um, you know, 2008 certainly was. And I, I think if you look at campaigns now, there probably is more kind of direct sharing of information. It actually would be really, I mean, Katie, it's a great, it's, it'd be really interesting to think about a 2024 campaign where teams just shared this stuff more directly as opposed to sharing it um, with media first. But I mean, I mean, you don't think masking the source ups the credibility level I mean and it's from public records so then but that's sort of to me what I assume the game is that it it's depends. better there, to there are plenty it. of there are plenty of stories where you know the it it is made very clear in the story that this information was provided by you know the Obama campaign or the Romney campaign or whomever it was um, does that hurt the impact of the story you think if it sounds like it came directly as an oppo dump versus like I the enterprising politi- you know political reporter have uncovered you know, yes, come car. on. I, so, 
it's a you know I I'm actually like I'm not just blowing so like I actually okay. don't because um I don't know how much I I like legitimately don't know how much weight that would carry with an average voter. <laughs> it's um, like people trust I, the media so little that it doesn't need to necessarily come from the press. Right, like there the there could be a world in which like you know, a campaign sharing that directly in, in 2024 has more credibility with a certain audience than it being shared. Depressing, through, but yes. Uh, well, uh, yeah. Yes, but Trump supporters will believe, they're more apt to believe information that comes from him directly than right. pushed through the Wall Street Journal. Right. Um, and I think that, and I don't want to only criticize, I, That that's, I'll just say that's one example. Um, and we see shades of it too in more mainstream circles where people were willing to embrace information that was later to be proven to be untrue about Donald Trump because they disliked him so much and it didn't matter where the information came from. The yeah, I, I think that that's, that's entire it's entirely possible that that's the case and it's you know and and even in like a non-Trumpian sort of world, you know, information that is shared by a figure, you know, in whom you believe passionately like probably does have a different weight to it and land differently and, and like attach itself to you in a way that is different from like I read it in you know my local newspaper I, I want to talk about DoorDash where you work now and mm -hmm. sort of the tech press which Tom was touching on a little bit earlier mm -hmm. um, and, I mean <laughs> there, there have been two major you know to me DoorDash stories one is sort of the I mean there, I'm sure you have many stories, but you know, that's to really me, hurtful, Eric. You know, there's the Prop 22 <laughs> and the sort of consumption of how how press deals with Prop 22, and then there's sort of how DoorDash has handled uh, tipping over the years. Um, what what? How would you rate the media's coverage of Prop 22? I mean, do you do you think it's fair? If it's not fair. What what would sort of your main criticism of it be? I was gonna say, can we just get a two sentence <laughs> yeah. description of Prop Twenty Two? Well, what what yeah. is it? Uh, something like fifty. Prop Twenty Two was the ultimate triumph of capital <laughs> over the working man, in which, in which, uh, no, basically it was a, a rule that allowed um, all the gig, major gig worker companies like Uber, Lyft, Instacart, DoorDash uh, to keep using uh, their their gig workers as contractors rather than employees and. It overturned uh, or superseded a previous law that uh, the, the state legislator had passed, which had uh, required these companies to treat them more like employees and give them benefits. And this kind of uh, pushed them more towards contractor status and made them, frankly, less expensive, but also and, and know, the over, less, the less regulated. And the voters overwhelmingly uh, favored it, right? I mean, wasn't it like 59 to 41, 59%. basically? Yeah. Um, I, I've written in favor of it. Um, as a disclosure. Anyway, uh, <laughs> what, what do you think of the sort of the broader media's uh, coverage of Prop 22? I think that, you know, there were there are obviously outlets covering um, 22 and sort of broader worker classification issues that have points of view. Um, and like, that's cool. I, you know, I think the 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 um, that is you know, y'all can tell me better. I'm not like the world's leading historian of uh, of journalism, but like it's it's not you know uncommon for there to be outlets that have a point of view. There are outlets that have a point of view on the left, on the right, what have you. Um, you know, I think 
when you're covering policy issues, whether it was you know the passage of AB5, which is the the bill that that Tom referenced that had passed in oh god Tom keep me honest the summer of 2019. Yeah, yes. yeah, it was right before the election, the election year. Yeah. Yes. Um, is the Dynamex? It, it was because the uh, Dynamex. Know, yes. <laughs> yeah, if people really no, want to go down the rabbit hole. Steeped. Woo. I'm sure we've got. Yes. Yeah, we're, we're going to do a bonus episode <laughs> where we can just talk through all the, the long, fascinating <laughs> history of all of these, which goes back to like 2014, actually. And Dynamex was a uh, was a courier service, um, not even related to these all companies right, specifically. All right. Okay. All right. Everybody has stopped listening. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I do think when it's when it's an assessment of of those kinds of of you know whether it's a worker classification policy issue, you know like, I, I, and I promise you, Eric, like I'm not evading the point, but like having dealt with this at the White House, like there were other like very hot button policy issues that folks sort of like. It, it's clear. It, I mean, reporters want to afflict the comfortable, comfort the afflicted, and in their view, certainly drivers are the afflicted, and you know, to to be against Prop 22, you have to come to a conclusion of what, what's right for drivers. But I, I do think just in how, who, who's attracted to reporting and, and sort of the prerogatives of reporting, I think reporters are pretty much set up to be against Prop 22 and sort of pro So you've never worked at Forbes or Fortune then. <laughs> well, I worked at Bloomberg, are you kidding me? A non, non-union uh, workplace if there ever was one. So I, yeah, there's certainly corporate corporate media. But, but what's interesting with, I think, all the coverage of labor from the mainstream and non-mainstream press is that I think they missed the story. I, I think you can you know, non-controversially say, and especially that was the case with the Amazon um, you know, unionization effort, which failed even worse than, than, than the Prop 22 opposition. Um, if you had only read you know, a couple of outlets that a lot of people tend to read, you would have thought that both were going to be in, extremely in favor of the workers. And you know, there was a lot of, I think, self-examination after the fact, reflection, whatever, in newsrooms saying, how, how did we miss the story so badly that we would have made it seem like this was going to be a huge victory for labor and, in fact, was, was quite the opposite? Um, and I think maybe that's what you're getting at, Eric, that like this maybe reflects just the I- I- ingrained biases that journalists have maybe as part of unions themselves or, you know, the, the, the natural inclinations of being a reporter, which is to, like you say, you know, root, root for the, the less well, yeah, powerful. Yeah, and I, well, and I, I would say, Tom, I think, you know, where we spent a lot of, of our time before during it, like it before during and after 22, um, you know, and, and our continuing the advocacy elsewhere like but it was for like again i'm i am yes i i work at doordash so like you are getting my spin but like i am also a you know taking off my professional hat like i am a democrat like my background that we've talked through like is no secret to anybody um and i wouldn't you know be be at a company like this if i didn't feel comfortable with it like there there are enormous societal inequities that are absolutely worth talking about and how gig work is treated and regulated and what is expected of increasingly powerful platforms is absolutely an appropriate, you know, debate and set of conversations to have. And I, nobody at DoorDash would tell you otherwise, but you know, what we do here very consistently in surveys of, of dashers in what we see in the data is like the choices that folks are making and why they are doing this. And that they, that this like, 
these are folks who are overwhelmingly looking for small increments of work to cover gaps in their finances from other jobs. And like we are, you know, I do think that that in particular sort of the survey data that shows that and the other things that show that, like, I don't know that that's always given the weight that I think that those, that those workers would want for it to get. Um, well, yeah, I think in, the in challenge that broad, is in that broader understanding. The companies have the data, the best data on workers, the types of workers. And then I, I think people tend to be skeptical of the independent surveys. I mean, most of them are commissioned by the companies. I mean, I do think it's sort of suspicious that the pro-labor side really can't produce I think a lot of surveys that show the drivers are on their side. But, you know, it is sort of like you're, you're going against your intuition, which is, you know, drivers getting employee status is good for them, or you trust the companies, which I think a lot of left-leaning left like, people... You shouldn't trust, you right. shouldn't trust any of us. It's not about <laughs> right. trusting, right. trusting well, then, but, me. But you talk about, about data. Yeah. It's just like the data comes from the companies. So, so data and the companies are sort of synonymous. Well, in my mind, I, mean, you know I, I, I guess I don't. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. I mean, I it, I even think about some of like, you know, I I think I, I look. I just I think it's to Tom's point of like when you you know, when you look at some of the results here, that that seem that you know whether it's that like don't seem in keeping maybe with what you would understand if if you read some of the coverage that it's, you know, it's a good conversation to have of like. What's, what are the other elements worth considering and, and taking into consideration? It's like, I don't, you know, it's not about like, take my word for it as, as the person from DoorDash. Um, I think the public, you know, these are super important topics. Like the, the way in which work is changing, the way in which tech platforms intersect with society and the economy, these are super important. And they should be topics of debate and conversation, not only with voters, but with lawmakers. Like, I don't think there's any, I, I will never disagree with that. Um, and, and, you know, we're going to, even getting back a little bit to the conversation about like direct versus going through the media, like we're going to, we're going to engage everywhere, um, you know, and like we're going to keep having the conversation with with media and we're going to keep telling the stories directly. But I, I do think, you know, I, I think that there were sometimes there there can be a and maybe this is also where you were going a little bit, Eric, of like a perception within tech of like, is there a reflexively negative portrayal of the of the industry? Right. Um, and like we can, you know, happy to sort of talk about that, but like in some ways it's it's both a worthy topic of conversation and doesn't matter because it, like you have to engage like a healthy fourth estate is good for everybody it is good for society it is good for the economy it is good for workers and companies and voters and everyone and everyone should want there to be robust coverage and accountability and covers that refl- that that like that does shed light on things both positive and negative all of that should exist and if you don't if you don't engage with it like that's the wrong place to end up i'd love my goal is to always be in the in the in the first place this is my pro media bias but i feel like we should end there <laughs> <laughs>
like, we love to have people come on and tell us how important we are. It's it's our favorite uh, anytime. We also like to end up in the good place, Liz. <laughs> we'll, let's all end up in the good place together. Baseball. Silicon Valley. Goodbye, 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 goodbye.